The following message and support for AHLA is provided by Berkeley Research Group, a global consulting firm that helps organizations advance in the areas of disputes and investigations, corporate finance, and strategy and operations. BRG helps clients stay ahead of what's next. For more information, visit thinkbrg.com. Welcome to the American Health Law Association's Fraud and Abuse Practice Group podcast. My name is Matt Wetzel. I'm the chair of the AHLA Fraud and Abuse Practice Group. And with me today are Joe Wolf and Kristen Carter, our vice chairs of educational programming. Joe is a partner in Hall Render's Milwaukee office, and Kristen is a partner in Baker Donaldson's uh, Baltimore office. And today we're going to talk about the uh, rules for uh, coordinated care that we're expecting to see from HHS uh, at any moment now. Uh, As many of you recall, last year uh, at the end of 2019, CMS and OIG in a coordinated fashion issued their proposed rules uh, for value-based arrangements and coordinated care. Uh, This, of course, created a significant uh, stir and impact in the industry. And now, as we're approaching uh, almost a year later, uh, 10 months later at this point since the release, uh, some of us are wondering, where are those rules? And so we wanted to spend a little time today uh, amongst the three of us talking about uh, the potential final rules, where they are and what we can uh, expect to see in those final rules. So Joe, you know, I might just turn it over to you first and ask uh, from a purely administrative perspective, where are the final rules and what can we expect in terms of timing for their release? Yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, uh, Right now, the rules are with the Office of of Management and Budget um, for final review. That's the last stop before they would move on to be published. So HHS has already sent them over. I think that occurred back on July 21st. Um, and so they're, they're right now sitting with OMB. Uh, the next step would be to, to move those forward and, and to publish them. So that, that's where they're sitting right now and, and uh, everyone's anxiously awaiting for them. That's great. And, 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 and what, what can we expect, Joe, um, from a timing perspective? Uh, and, and by that, I mean, uh, you know, is there a sense of urgency in the industry? Is there a need to have these rules out sooner rather than later? What are your thoughts there? Well, as you mentioned earlier, the rules came out last October in proposed form. I think the industry was largely supportive of them. Uh, the, the comment period ended at the end of last year in 2019. So um, you know, at that point, I think the, the, the thinking was that they would move forward this year. Obviously, um, in some ways that has been derailed by COVID. Um, I think when we look at the, the, maybe the larger categories in these two rules, there was the idea of some cleanups of some of the terminology and, and requirements. Um, and, I, and I think that those um, were well received. Uh, there was a second major part of those rules was the new value-based framework and um, what that was going to look like. And um, in, in my experience in working with the industry, uh, that was, there was support there as well. I think it was a bit more of a wait and see and a desire to see some examples from the government on how that framework would work. So um, in many ways, the proposed rules weren't that controversial. Um, and I think they, they were viewed by the industry as a, a step forward. And I think we fast forward to now, um, you know, in, As I said before, in some ways, COVID-19, I think, slowed this process down. Um, You know, in some ways, perhaps the 
the industry may view these rules as, as maybe even more necessary because of, of COVID as we've seen um, the flexibility around some of the waivers and how they've played in. Um, and, and, and maybe now we would use some of these other flexibilities the, the, the revised and, and new rules might provide as, as more welcome. But I think there's a push to get this done. Um, like I said, it's been with OMB since July 21st. I think just a couple of weeks ago, uh, there was a letter to the president from over 123 healthcare organizations um, that they sent an open letter to the president and, and to try to advance the ball on this rule with OMB. So I think there is a push to get this done uh, for many of the reasons I mentioned already. Um, and and I, I think many stakeholders in the industry want to see this get uh, pushed forward now so the benefits of reform aren't lost. Um, that's great. In, that's, yeah. that's great. And and it, Joe, you mentioned um, a letter to the president. Kristen, you know, we've got a, a, a big election coming up at the end of this year, not only a presidential election, which obviously I think is at front of mind for many people, uh, but also a potential change uh, and shift uh, in representation in Congress as well. Uh, what, 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 what role does uh, the election play in these final rules? Uh, and, and, and how can Congress uh, uh, step in and impact the final rules as well? Any thoughts there? Sure. Um, thanks, Matt. You know, I, I think the, the impending election certainly provides additional motivation to finalize these rules as soon as possible for, for a few reasons. Um, you know, one of them, as, as Joe mentioned, there's a lot of people in the industry who are anxiously awaiting these rules and the flexibility um, that might be provided by these rules and I think, you know, the need for it has been even further exposed by COVID-19. Um, so getting these rules out, you know, could be seen as a political win on providing, you know, some additional flexibility in the industry to, you know, address value-based care and care coordination. Um, in addition, there's some administrative and congressional sort of oversight pieces that are at play. Um, if some of you may recall at the, the turn of the last election where we had a um, new administration and both houses were um, dominated by the Republicans, they actually used the Congressional Review Act, which is a statute that um, provides Congress with authority to pass joint resolutions disapproving of agency rules. Um, that were issued within the past 60 legislative days. So it's a really powerful tool that we saw used by the, the Trump administration and Congress at the changeover of the administration last time um, that if there's a similar changeover and you know there's, there's a Democrat in power and the, the House and both houses of Congress change, that tool might be used to the extent um, these rules are delayed significantly. I, I don't know how much this is a hot button topic that they might use it, but it is something at play to consider. Um, also, often when we see a change in administration, um, the, the, the administration will issue a memorandum to pause some of the regulations that are still in process. So mm -hmm. regulations that aren't finalized by the time period and, and effective as of the time period and changeover of administration might otherwise be put on pause um, using administrative action. So I think there's some uh, 
definitely some motivation from an administrative standpoint to get these finalized and effective prior to the change in administration, if there were a change in administration. Really great insight, Kristen, and uh, interesting observations on sort of the political ramifications of these rules. And, you know, kind of digging into some of the substance here and, you know, at the risk of uh, asking two lawyers to, uh, to make predictions, I'd love to hear your, your, your thoughts and prognostications about where HHS might actually go on some of these uh, 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 principles and uh, regulatory uh, uh, changes that we should see later this year. I mean, I'm even thinking myself about how will OIG and CMS uh, implement these new rules in light of their goals uh, for the new rules and whether the whether these new rules will actually hit those goals, modernizing the safe harbors and the regulatory exceptions, uh, ensuring that care is better coordinated, ensuring that um, risk is uh, is allotted amongst parties to value-based arrangements in a way that, uh, that, that makes sense. Let me ask, what are your thoughts? What are your sort of top takeaways or top expectations, top predictions for the rules? Kristen, I might start with you. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm anxiously awaiting to see what these value-based rules look like because I do think the pandemic and even you know, leading up to the pandemic has shown the need for coordination of care. And I think a lot of people in the industry view uh, the Stark Law in particular as being a, a large hurdle to arrangements between uh, designated health service entities, you know, labs, hospitals, and health systems, and physicians. So, um, but as Joe Joe mentioned, a lot of people were in the wait and see mode on those value-based rules. So, you know, while we, you know, they dug in on the proposals, it'll be interesting to see how far or different those value-based proposals are from, or what's final from what was proposed and what activities will be protected and, you know, the levels of financial risk associated with each of those uh, exceptions. I think it'll be very helpful if those are, are enacted in order to provide more latitude to those types of arrangements. Absolutely. Joe, would love your thoughts, predictions, prognostications. Yeah, I, I would say that I'm, I'm hoping to see that many of the cleanups that were proposed are implemented very similar to the way they looked in the, in the proposed rule. Um, I, I would, you know, I, I would anticipate the, the fact that the rules are, are progressing in a very busy environment right now that I, I, I'm anticipating that the rules may look very much like the proposed rules. Um, I think that, um, uh, like I said before, many of the cleanups were just widely accepted. And the um, changes to the definition, the new commercial reasonableness definition, the tweaks of fair market value, the 90-day signature rule, those I don't think will be viewed as particularly controversial. On the, on the value-based framework side, I, I do hope that we'll see more consistency between the anti-kickback statute and the Stark um, regs uh, when when they come out uh, that the value-based frameworks are, are synced up a bit better than they looked in that uh, proposed rule you know things around uh, this, so that we can have a situation where a structure a value-based structure fits both rules without having to have you know a, a dual sort of structure to, to meet both both of the laws so I'm hoping that that's what we see uh, when this rule is ultimately finalized and the government hopefully will have pinned down 
uh, you know, things like, you know, who's going to be inclusive, uh, you know, who, are, what value-based BBE participants are going to be allowed in, and, and is that going to be the same under both rules? I, that's what I'm hoping to see. Good observations. Thank you. And, you know, Joe, we had a conversation recently about the impact of COVID-19 on, uh, on uh, healthcare fraud and abuse more generally, but I wonder if you have any thoughts on how this current situation um, is impacting potentially what these final rules might say. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm. Um, I know Kristen touched on this briefly. I think this does highlight the complexity of the rules and and how um, having um, rigid uh, rules can can make make uh, the delivery of healthcare challenging. So I'm hoping the additional flexibility we see under this rule. Um, I, I hope some of those changes in cleanups and and um, areas where more flexibility was provided were really highlighted by the the, the recent COVID-19 pandemic. Um, th those are my thoughts on that. No, I think that's great. And, and you know, from my own perspective, uh, you know, one of the questions I have for uh, HHS is whether uh, COVID-19 will impact substantively the rules. Obviously, you know, we've kind of talked a little bit about, about that. We've talked how uh, COVID-19 has impacted the administrative release of the rules, but substantively, uh, you know, what we've seen over the past few months is one giant value-based arrangement or coordinated care uh, uh, activity uh, in play uh, with the response to COVID-19. I note that uh, in the proposed rule, as, as Joe, you somewhat alluded to, uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers, DME suppliers, labs, uh, in, in many cases, medical technology companies are prohibited or prevented from uh, the protections of the various safe harbors, new safe harbors and regulations. But these are also the entities that in the midst of the COVID crisis have been developing vaccines, engaging with payers, uh, uh, making sure that we've got a full supply of PPE, ventilators, other medical technology, developing cures uh, and treatments. So I think uh, the level of coordination among those parties has been fairly significant. And my question is whether uh, OIG and CMS have actually taken that into account and taken a look at that substantively uh, in their final rules when they come out. Any reactions to that concept? Yeah, I think that that's a, a good point, Matt. I mean, there a lot of parties have come to the table um, in response to COVID-19. Um, it really has been a, a, a multi-stakeholder uh, effort. Uh, with the proposed rules, and your to your point, that what, who was allowed to be a VBE participant was going to be very important. Um, and as, as I, I saw in the comments back and as I worked with, we worked with clients, we did see um, a desire to have more parties at the table so we could come up with cr more creative models um, in this value-based framework, um, because especially because of data, um, different types of entities um, in, these, in these categories that were um, uh, where the government wasn't sure if they were going to allow them in. Obviously, they have access to data, and data will be king as we, we think about value-based arrangements. So I think that COVID has highlighted uh, the importance of having information and the importance of having uh, uh, different stakeholders at the table to solve very difficult problems. 
Joe, really appreciate that. And, um, uh, you know, Kristen, we've talked a little bit about some of the substantive rules here uh, and potential changes to the rules. What's your guidance to other practitioners who are kind of get gearing up and getting ready for uh, the release of these final rules? Sure. I mean, I think it is time to, to sort of dust off looking at the proposals just to have a good handle of what might be coming down the pike and being prepared to, you know, address those issues as they get released. I mean, I know we're certainly taking it into account when evaluating arrangements right now, if these rules are finalized, how, what the, how that might change those arrangements we're currently looking at and what flexibilities might be might we be able to take advantage of, you know, to, to propel some of these arrangements that their, you know, parties are considering. So I certainly think that should be taken into account. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what comes out on the Stark side in terms of some of the flexibilities, you know, around lease arrangements, their, you know, the, the consideration of an exception for limited remuneration. Um, some some new exceptions, you know, that we we hadn't seen previously that'll hopefully if enacted will provide additional flexibility. So um, keeping those in mind as you're looking at arrangements this year. Absolutely. Absolutely. Joe, any advice to practitioners looking to get ready? No, just as Kristen said, I, I would look at these rules, understand how they fit into your contracting and compliance protocols. Um, in, in some ways, it's going to make um, compliance um, assessments easier. Um, on the value-based side, uh, I would start looking at the value-based framework, understanding you know, where your organization might fit into uh, this VB, this value-based enterprise type framework. Maybe you already have some of the features that could align with these new rules. Uh, I would start looking at this terminology because it will be helpful and you're going to want to start to frame your activities in, in the these in this terminology um, as you move forward and think about value-based care. Great reminders and great insight and I suppose at this point we can just kind of hold our breath and wait to get that notice uh, that the rules have been released the final rules have been released rather until then uh, great, great guidance and, and we should all be uh, dusting off those proposed rules making sure we remember uh, what the agencies had said about a year ago and then of course being prepared uh, to uh, uh, to, to move forward and to start speaking in terms of the, the lexicon that uh, HHS is putting out there for us. So, uh, Joe, Kristen, thanks so much for the time today. Any final thoughts on the final rules? So I, I would just say, you know, let's, let's see what happens and hopefully we're, you know, we're getting to the finish line and um, we'll, we'll have something soon to um, start working with, with the industry on. Absolutely. A, a mentor of mine told me uh, about a year and a half ago that we're about to enter a period where uh, it's uh, very, very exciting uh, and dynamic to be a healthcare fraud and abuse lawyer. And I wasn't sure if I believed them or not, but uh, now I do. And uh, we certainly have a lot of exciting uh, change ahead of us. So uh, good luck to everyone in getting, uh, in getting those final rules out and, and, and reading them and incorporating them into your daily practice. Uh, thanks so much, Joe, Kristen. Really appreciate the time and the insight today. This has been the latest episode of the American Health Law Association Fraud and Abuse Podcast. I'm Matt Wetzel, and we'll return next month with another episode. Thanks so much.